0: Of 1 Corinthians and to chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'm going to read uh, two verses here from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20. And then I'm actually going to read another passage, uh, which I think is not listed there in the uh, bulletin. And it's from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. And the two passages I'm reading. The one from 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 and 20 and the one from Ephesians 5 are the first and the last proof text for the first two questions in the Heidelberg Catechism that we're going to be looking at today. And so that's the the purpose behind these two uh, passages. Let me invite you as you're able. Let's stand together in honor of the reading and hearing of God's word. Again, first from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And then uh, turning over to Ephesians chapter uh, 5, verses 8 through 10, uh, we read uh, the following For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. May God bless today again the reading and the hearing of His Word. and Let us join in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, as we meditate upon what it means uh, to not be our own, uh, but to uh, be those who belong to Christ as we start this new year, Uh, help us, O God, to attend unto Thy Word. Give us uh, the light of the Spirit so that we might see and embrace the truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are beginning today a new series in these afternoon times of Lord's Day worship. And this series is going to be through an instrument of discipleship, a proven instrument of discipleship, that is known as the Heidelberg Catechism. A catechism, some people hear that word and they think, Roman Catholic, because they, maybe they know the Roman Catholic Catechism. But a catechism is a way of teaching doctrine and practice that makes use of a question and answer format. And its catechisms have historically been used by Protestants to teach the faith. In fact, the English word, catechism, is based upon a Greek word, katekeo. A word that means to teach or to instruct. And so it's used, for example, in the opening of the Gospel of Luke. Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, he says, I'm writing this Gospel so that you might know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. And when he uses that word "instructed," it's katecho. The things in which you have been catechized or instructed. Now it doesn't mean that, that Luke and the early Christians at that time had a question and answer booklet that they were going through. But it does likely mean that as they taught new Christians, they would ask them questions. And they would see how they would answer. And they would teach them what, what, would, be, what would be a proper answer to the question. You know, who is God? Who is Christ? Etc. And... Eventually, these these things aren't inspired writings, but eventually many Christians uh, use catechisms, question and answer formats, to teach doctrine and practice. And so these were used in discipleship uh, to help people grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. The Heidelberg Catechism gets its name from the fact that it was first written and used in Heidelberg, Germany. Uh, at the time of the Protestant Reformation. See, the Reformation swept through many cities of Europe, and there were people who had been in churches, maybe they were baptized as infants, they attended the Roman Catholic Church, but they didn't really, they weren't believers, and they didn't understand the faith either. They just went while the the priest mumbled something in Latin, and they didn't really perceive and understand it. And so it was a huge task that was put before the men of that era, during that time of revival, And it was it was not only to preach the gospel, but it was also to teach what the gospel is, because there were there were many people, so many people, who were in ignorance. Well, in those days in Heidelberg in the early 16th century, there was a there was a secular ruler uh, called an elector in the Palatinate region of Germany, where Heidelberg was, and this man uh, was named Frederick Frederick III, and uh, he was a Christian. And he wanted the people who lived uh, in his region to learn the Reformed faith. He was called by some people Frederick the Pious. Can you imagine if we had rulers today who wanted people who lived uh, in the area that they ruled to know the gospel and to know the faith? Well, this, this man did. And so uh, he commissioned... The, the, the making of this catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, to teach people the Reformed faith, which is really biblical faith, the gospel. And uh, the two guys in the commission to do this, uh, one of them was a 28-year-old teacher of theology at Heidelberg University whose name was Zacharias Ursinus, And the other was a 26-year-old preacher named Kaspar Ale- Alevianus. So this this Heidelberg Catechism that we're going to start looking at today was written by a couple of twenty twenty year olds um, who uh, had discovered the gospel and were excited about teaching people about the faith. And he wanted this catechism to be used to teach young people, but also to be used by pastors. That they would they would because there were a lot of people there were a lot of people who were pastors who didn't know well the gospel either. And, and he, he wanted this to be used to help teach them how rightly to preach and how rightly to teach. And so they produced this Heidelberg Catechism, which, is, which has been described as holding unusual power and beauty. And it's described as an acknowledged masterpiece. This catechism was approved in a church assembly or a synod of reformed churches in the year 1563. 1563. It went through a couple of editions, and there were some some slight changes made to it. Finally, by the fourth edition, they had the definitive one that has been read ever since then. So this has been read, studied uh, since 1563. The Heidelberg Catechism consists of 129 questions and answers. It also has numerous scriptural proof texts. In fact, it included many more scriptural proof texts than other catechisms that were used in its day. And it's interesting, when it was first uh, written by those two young men, the German Bibles were not yet divided into verses. So they only had the book and the chapter. And they would would cite just the book and the chapter. And then later on, when their Bibles uh, were versified, uh, the, the, the verses were added for the proof text. The authors used so many citations from the Bible as proof text, because they said they wanted their catechism to be an echo of the Bible. As we shall see when we look at question two, and by the way, hopefully you noticed on the back of your bulletin, um, we have the first two questions that we're going to briefly look at today. uh, Question one and question two. And you'll, you'll notice in question two, that that's sort of an introductory question for the entire catechism, and it indicates to us that this catechism is going to be divided into three main parts. First of all, it teaches us about sin and misery in questions 1 through 11. Secondly, it teaches about us about redemption through Christ. That's going to be questions 12 through 85. And then thirdly, it teaches about what we could call ethics or Gratitude. How we are to live to live in light of the gospel. And that's going to be questions 86 through 129. And the, the two young men, the two guys in their 20s who came up with this, they had that threefold pattern for this catechism. And they also suggested that this followed the outline or the pattern for the book of Romans. They said, if you look at Romans, Romans chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 20 is about man's state in sin. If you've ever read Romans, you know the first couple chapters are all about man's problem, the sin problem man has. Then the second part of Romans, from Romans 3.21 to the end of chapter 11, is about redemption through Christ. And So that's the way they organize. They're first going to tell us about sin and misery. Then they're going to talk about redemption. In the section about redemption, they're going to teach through the Apostles' Creed. They're going to teach about baptism, about the Lord's Supper as well. And finally, part three will focus on gratitude. And they said that's what Romans chapters 12 through 16 is about. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice before God. Um... And so in the last part of the catechism, they teach the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. So these 129 questions were soon divided into 52 sections. One for each Lord's Day of the year. And so this little catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, 1563, started to be widely used in Germany, and especially in Holland and by many reformed churches across continental Europe. It was translated into most modern languages and then to many languages of Asia and Africa. And it has been suggested that the Heidelberg Catechism is the most widely circulated book after the Bible, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis, and John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. In 1566, just a couple years after the catechism came out, a Dutch pastor in Amsterdam named Peter Gabriel set a pattern that is still followed in many so-called Dutch Reformed churches by expounding the Heidelberg Catechism each Lord's Day afternoon. And that tradition continues in many Reformed churches, especially Dutch Reformed churches. If you ever go up into Michigan... Places like that, you'll see many churches that are Dutch Reformed churches or Christian Reformed churches are called. And many of them still teach through the Heidelberg Catechism every Lord's Day afternoon. At the Great Synod of Dort, which was an international conference of Calvinistic preachers that was called to rebut what they believed was the false teachings of a man named Arminius. And they met in the city of Dort, Holland, 1618 and 1619 They officially uh, gave their uh, expressed their confidence in the Heidelberg Catechism as a standard for teaching Reformed Christianity, along with another document that was called the Belgic Confession, and the 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 findings of the meeting of Dort itself, which were called the Canons of Dort. And so you might run into Christians, particularly Dutch Reformed Christians. Uh, German Reformed Christians, and they will say they hold to what are called the three forms of unity. And by that, they mean the Belgic Confession, alongside of the Canons of Dort, and the Heidelberg Catechism. Those are their three forms of unity. Again, I was talking with somebody about this uh, recently. We talked about the Protestant Reformation. It was a great revival And that revival took place in different places. It started on the continent of Europe, Germany and Switzerland, uh, France and uh, and Holland. In in the British Isles, it came, and, and really our church, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, we're heirs of the English Protestant Reformation. So we hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Baptist version of the 1689, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which became the Baptist Catechism. But on the continent, they held to the three forms of unity, the Belgian Confession and the canons of Dort and the Heidelberg Catechism. Perhaps above all else, this Catechism has been praised for its spirituality. By the, by the way, you, hopefully you've discovered by now that this is we're doing a lot of introductory talk today so that you'll understand what we're going to be looking at as we proceed further. But this catechism has been praised for its spirituality. It has been called an experiential work. Some, have you ever heard that among Reformed teachers? They'll say, this expresses experiential piety. And by that they mean that to be a Christian, and to be a biblical Christian, it's not just a matter of your intellect. It's not just a matter of what you know in your head. But it's a matter of the experience of your heart. And so... We want not just uh, knowledge of right doctrine, but we want experiential piety. We want to know and love the Lord and serve Him with our lives. And so this book has been praised as, as putting more emphasis on spirituality alongside of good doctrine. It's also been called the book of comfort for God's people. Now, I've noted that the Heidelberg Catechism, maybe some of you have never even heard of it, and that's that's quite likely because you may not be as familiar with what's known as the Continental Reform Movement. And obviously, the Heidelberg Catechism is not a Baptist catechism. But it has been used by Baptists. In the year 1680, there was a particular Baptist, or Reformed Baptist pastor, with a wonderful name, Hercules Collins. That was his name. And he was the pastor of the old Gravel Lane Church. The old Gravel Lane Baptist Church in London. And by the way, can somebody have a kid and name their kid Hercules, please? And we'll, we'll say his name. Give me Hercules Collins and fill in your last name. That'd be a good name for a kid. So, anyways, but um, anyways, uh, he wanted to teach the Heidelberg Catechism to his congregation, but he didn't want to teach them the things the Heidelberg Catechism had in it about baptism, for example, because it teaches infant baptism and not believer's baptism. And so he revised the Heidelberg Catechism from a Baptist perspective for his congregation, and he called it an orthodox catechism. And he wrote in the preface to it, he said, here is milk for babes, meat for strong men. he says this catechism is lovely because it can teach the, the new convert but it can also challenge the mature Christian so here is milk for babes meat for strong men he says it may not unsuitably be compared to the waters of the sanctuary where some may go up to the ankles others to the knees others to the loins and they are deep enough for others to swim in he said you can read this You can just get in, wet your toes, you can go up to the knees, up to the waist, you can go swim in it if you want. When we come to the parts of this catechism that relate to church order and the sacraments, we will consult Pastor Hercules Collins' revision rather than stick to the Heidelberg Catechism. But in much of the study, we'll simply use the Heidelberg Catechism because most of it is verbatim the same, except for those few places. So let's move on and let's look briefly at these first two questions that are printed there on the back of your bulletin. The Heidelberg Catechism begins with this first question, which is probably the most famous question in the entire catechism. The question is this, what is thy only comfort in life and death? And it gives this answer. Remember, a catechism is teaching doctrine and practice through questions and answers. What is thy only comfort? What is your only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation and therefore by His Holy Spirit He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. This opening question, what is thy only comfort in life and death? Or what is your only comfort in life and death? Like I said, is it deservedly a very famous question. And if you read Reformed writers, you'll often see references to this question. Or you'll hear Reformed speakers make reference to this question. What is your only, what is your only comfort in life and death? Probably the, the, the most famous statement in the Westminster Shorter Catechism or the Baptist Catechism of Spurgeon is the first one, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But this question is kind of famous in its own right like that. What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer that is, is given uh, is also well known, uh, but it's the posing of the question great question to ask on this first Lord's day of the new year what is my comfort in my life what will be my comfort in my death and this implies that that perhaps there are false comforts that one can turn to in this life and there are false comforts that one can turn to when one considers his death let's consider life what are the false comforts that you might have a satisfied fulfilling life you might think i'll i'll have a satisfied and fulfilling life if i have material success that's my comfort in life i will have a successful life if i have pleasure if i if i gain pleasure if i eat all i want drink all i want you know i'll have pleasure i'll have pleasure if i have a family if i have a wife or a husband and i have children and grandchildren that that will bring me comfort in life or if I enjoy splendid health, or if I get the the degree I want, the education I want to achieve, if I become well-known and famous, when I leave, I want people to know my name. I want to make my mark in the world. Will I find my comfort in life through entertainment? If I can just listen to the right music or make the right music. Uh, If I can just uh, engage in the right sports and recreations then i will find comfort in life and there are also false comforts in death when we consider the fact that we will die we will go in the way of all flesh we can find false comforts we can think well i'm going to be okay in death because of all the good works i've done i'm a good person therefore i can have comfort in death i have nothing to fear in death or maybe we can say i have comfort in death because I believe in universalism. I believe God will save everyone regardless of how they respond to Christ. Or I have comfort in death because I believe God's the God of second chances. And even after I die, God will give me a second chance. Friends, that's not what the Bible teaches. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Our Roman Catholic friends think I have comfort in death because there's a thing called purgatory and I can progress over time, and I can be further sanctified after death, and I could be, be made holy over time. Or some of our Asian friends can say, I have comfort in death because I believe in reincarnation, and maybe I've driven to a certain point of goodness in this life, and then, you know, in the next life, I'll be reincarnated, and I'll, I'll move maybe up a scale, and I'll keep moving my way up the hierarchy, Uh, Until I'm some sort of exalted being. Those are false comforts. And there are false comforts in life and death. But what does this catechism teach based on the scriptures? My only hope in life and death is what? My only hope in life and death is the Lord Jesus Christ. That I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ's body and soul. And it starts off by quoting that great passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. For ye, talking to believers, are bought with a price. We are not our own, We 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 do not live to exert our own rights. Our only hope in life and death is the Lord Jesus Christ. Our only hope is that we belong to Him, that we are not our own. His blood has made satisfaction for my sin. He has also demonstrated the power to deliver me from the clutches of Satan by raising Christ from the dead. Not one hair from my head falls to the ground apart from His will. Because He owns me, He exercises a meticulous care over me. His care for me is not by general indifferent providence. His care for me is by special providence. He gives His angels charge over my life. By the Holy Spirit, He gives me assurance of my salvation. I don't have to grope about in the dark and wonder if I'm in or out. By His Holy Spirit, I have assurance of my salvation. And this prepares me to handle the best things that might happen to me in my life, and also the worst things that might come up against me, even death itself. What is my only comfort in life and death? is that through faith and by grace, I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Second question that's posed there is, how many things are necessary for thee to know that thou, enjoying this comfort, mayest live and die happily? Okay, so you know Christ. You have faith in Christ. What three things, our teacher here, the Heidelberg Catechism, what three things do we need to know that we might enjoy this comfort? And um, the answer that is given back is this three things, three things we need to know. The first, how great my sins and miseries are. The second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. The third, how I shall express my gratitude to God for such deliverance. So, we're told here that we need three things. And we could call these the three spiritual laws of the Heidelberg Catechism. First of all, our teacher here, based on biblical proof text, says the first thing that a man needs to know, a woman needs to know, is that we need to understand that apart from Christ, we live in sin and misery. We may feel as though we're living a happy life, contented life. But apart from Christ, we live in sin and misery. Secondly, we need to know that our only hope for deliverance is in Christ alone. And then thirdly, we need to know that if by grace I am delivered from sin and misery, and I come to faith in Christ, that then I am to live a life of gratitude before God. It has been said that all of Christian ethics, all Christian good works are just expressions of gratitude for what God has done for us. We do not read the Bible. We do not care for the poor, the sick and the dying. We do not pray. We do not attend church so that we might earn heaven and be saved. We do those things because we are saved. They flow out of a Christian's life. And so all of Christian ethics, all Christian good works are gratitude. There's a well-known two-volume commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism that was written by a 19th century pastor. He has a great, had a great name. His name was George Washington Bethune. And this, his uh, commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism is still in print, published by Banner of Truth. It's over a thousand pages in length. And uh, the title of this exposition by George uh, Washington Bethune of the Heidelberg Catechism is this. Here's the title. Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. If you're looking for three... I don't know, pegs upon which to hang the Christian life. It might well be understanding those three things. First, that I have guilt because I am a sinner. I have sinned against a righteous and holy God. I have offended against a righteous and holy God. Guilt. Second peg, though, is grace. God. The Father has extended grace in the sending forth in the fullness of time His Son to die on the cross for sinners and to give us His righteous life. And then the third peg is gratitude. In light of what God has done for me in Christ, I will live for Him. And He will have the first priority in my life. He will be my first thought every morning. My last thought every evening. And He will fill every thought in between. Guilt. Grace. Gratitude. Because Christ is our only comfort in life and in death. Amen. We invite you to stand together let's join in prayer gracious and loving god we give you thanks for thy word and for the teaching through the apostle paul that we are not our own that we were bought with a price that we belong to christ and this gives our life all the meaning and purpose that it has it provides all the comfort that we have in this life and it provides us also comfort when we lie on our deathbed that we know we are in his hands and so as we walk through in this year ahead uh, this catechism that has been um, a comfort and has extended and expanded the piety of many of the saints who have gone before us we pray that you would help us guide us instruct us and teach us uh, not Not through uninspired words, but through the the inspired word that is the basis for this teaching that we're going to be looking at. Prepare our hearts now for coming to that table. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.